I'm going to ask you this morning if you would to turn to Matthew chapter 22. If you're a guest with us this morning, we want to thank you for being here. Uh, we are working through the harmony of the Gospels. So we are looking at the life of Jesus Christ through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, all chronologically and in harmony with the life of Christ. And uh, we are currently in the week of the Passion Week, and we've been here for a while, and uh, thank you to Brother Stewart for preaching last week in my absence. Um, we're going to pick up this morning in Matthew chapter 22. So as you find your place there, uh, let me just remind you this morning of, uh, of how we are coming to the, the, the Word of God with, with humility to learn and to understand. And, and so my prayer this morning for us is that our ears would be attentive uh, to hear God's word, the Spirit of God would would work through His word to teach us and to guide us. Um, and so, I want to begin this morning with just a word of prayer. Father, thank you uh, for Your word, God. This morning, we have sung praises to Your name, and we have uh, thought about and 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 looked to our own failures and weaknesses. And God, our attempt has been to glorify and honor You as our powerful Lord and Savior. And God, we thank you that, that we can come to your word to learn and to grow, to be challenged, to be disciplined. And so, Father, I, I pray that you would speak through uh, my preaching to the hearts of all of us here today in a way, Lord, that does the work that you intend. Um, Lord, we love you and we thank you that, that you have not left us to ourselves but that you have given us this guidance and this truth to fuel our lives, to guide us and direct us until your son Jesus returns. And so may we glorify him today in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if, if you don't know me, I have uh, five children at home and uh, we are in a new f uh, phase of parenting where we have one daughter that's uh, a freshman in college. Uh, we have two daughters, one in eighth grade and one in ninth grade, and I couldn't help but thinking this week of that that pivotal question that everyone asks that age group of students. So if you're a young person here today, you feel the weight of this question, what are you going to do when you graduate? What are you going to do with your life? What's your life going to be? Are you going to be this you know, model citizen? Are you going to make a good contribution to society, or are you just going to be a big loser? That's kind of the, that's, that's what kids interpret that question as when you ask them, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I know that, I know that weight. I remember the feeling of that weight when I started uh, the University of Memphis, um, which by the way, I was an art major, which probably surprises most of you. Um, I was an art major for six months until I realized that starving artist was not a figure of speech. Um, I transferred to be a finance major and was in the banking industry for many years before God called me to ministry. But the weight of that question to think about as a young person, what am I going to do with my life, is a heavy burden on their hearts. It's like they have to make this one decision that impacts the rest of their life. Because they don't really understand that you can change your major 15 times in college and still somehow finish, right? Right? Even now in high school today, they, 
they're cho- they're, they are supposed to take, um, I, I guess they, they choose a path of, of education, a technical path or an intellectual path. I don't know. My kids are homeschooled, so we just kind of tell them what they're going to do. But, but, but they, they, they take this path, and that kind of sets the trajectory of their life. And it's a big, this big life decision that they have to make. And students, let me just tell you on the front end, it's not that big of a deal. You're going to change your mind, and that question is, is important, and you should consider it. But, but, but the Lord works through those majors that you change and those paths that you alter a little bit. Don't worry about it. Don't fret. But a greater question and a more important question is not what are you going to do when you graduate or not what, what are you going to do when you, you finish college, but what are you, where are you going to spend eternity? That's the real question. That's, that's the question that should, should keep you up, up at night. And it's the question that we all should, should ponder this morning is where are we going to spend eternity? What are we going to do when our life passes away from this earth and we live live on in the, in the world or the life after? This is an important question because this is what Scripture teaches us. It teaches us spiritual truth. It doesn't teach us necessarily physical things that we need to understand as much as the spiritual truth of this world, that eternity exists, that there is a life after this earth, and that all people will live beyond death in one way or the other. Now, when you go around and ask people this question, where will they spend their eternity, you'll get different answers. A Muslim would describe the afterlife as a place of eternal heavenly bliss where all of their desires will be fulfilled. Those who are faithful will experience this bliss. Those who are unfaithful as Muslims will face the judgment from Allah. A Hindu would not necessarily uh, believe in an afterlife. They would seek to, they, they would say that humanity exists to, to remove the ignorance that blinds all people from actually seeing their current oneness with the divine. They want to surpass that ignorance and enter into enlightenment so that they would one day merge with the, as they call it, the oneness of spiritual divinity. A Mormon would actually believe in a pre-existence of this world. If a Mormon comes to your door, they're actually going to believe that that you existed and I existed before we ever lived on this earth, that that was phase one of life, and that when we were created in this world, that was phase two, and that the the goal and the, the the place that they're seeking is phase three, and according to Mormon belief, that would be a state of being a, a lesser god or goddess for all eternity. And then, of course, atheism basically denies the existence of, of an afterlife. They're going to deny the existence of God. They're going to deny the existence of heaven and hell. And they're simply going to believe, live your life to the fullest, because in the end, you just become dirt. Life is over. You, your consciousness and you, ex- you cease to exist from the world. 
And so what do you believe about eternity? It's a simple question this morning. It's a question that Jesus has to answer in Matthew chapter 22. And it's a question that you have to answer in according to what the Bible says. See, today I'm not trying to give you another option in your belief system. I'm not here to lay out the supernatural fast food menu of eternal life and say, here, just choose which main menu you'd like or which main course you'd like and which sides you'd like to go with that. Because the gospel actually says that there is one way to spiritual life. There's one way to salvation and eternity, and that's only through the Lord Jesus. It's a very exclusive statement. Jesus says in John 14, I am not one of the ways. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So we don't live in a, we don't live, well, we do live in a world that says that there are many ways and many paths, but that is, that is false. That's the, that's the failure in the world today. That's the error that people fall into, even into churches today. And when I say churches, I use that word very loosely because they want to be very inclusive, or they want to engage in inclusivism and, and, and bring all these different ideas. They want to syncretize these ideas of, of the world and different philosophies and, and humanism, and they want to mix it all together with Christianity so they don't exclude anyone. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And I can't imagine a more offensive statement than Jesus saying, I am the only way. There's no more offensive statement. It's an exclusive statement that forces us to rather believe in him and receive eternal life or reject him and still receive eternal life, but an eternal life that will face eternity of damnation and punishment. And so Jesus is confronted in our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 22 by these religious leaders, and he's facing this question that we want to look at today. What is the truth about eternity? We're going to look at verses 23 through 33. Let me read this to us. The same day the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died having no children left for his brother, or having no children left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third down to the seventh. And after them all, the woman died Now here's the question, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will this woman be? For they all had her. And Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. 
Now, like I said, Jesus is in the last week of the Passion Week. He's in the temple and he's teaching uh, groups of people. They're there listening to him, including the religious leaders. He's already being questioned by the, the Pharisees, these religious uh, self-righteous leaders that, that wanted nothing more than to see Jesus crucified because he was a blasphemer. They hated him for his declarations that he was one with the Father. But now we have the Sadducees. And the Sadducees have come to again conspire to trap Jesus just like the Pharisees. They want to publicly ridicule him and embarrass him before the people. And most of all, they are garnering up and they are building their case against Jesus so they may crucify him. Now in the context, Jesus has come into Jerusalem during the Passion Week. On Sunday, he enters in on the donkey. People are proclaiming him as the appointed and expected Messiah. Monday he goes and he clears the temple by overturning the tables and disrupting this this big enterprise of the religious elite. And Tuesday now, he's there on Tuesday teaching in the temple and is being attacked by these different groups. And it's in our passage today that it's the Sadducees who are attacking him. Well, who are the Sadducees? Well, it's been described as they are the religious fundamentalists. They would consider themselves conservative because they held to the five books of the law of Moses, the Pentateuch. They looked at all the other scriptures of the Old Testament as mere commentaries and and as, as an assistant to the books that Moses wrote. But this caused a great problem with their theology. Most particular, they denied the resurrection. They denied spiritual life, the afterlife. They denied spiritual beings like angels. Now, the Pharisees would consider them the religious liberals because they, the Sadducees denied the oral tradition, the Torah. They denied the, the oral tradition that was passed down by the Pharisees. And so in a sense, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were great enemies of one another. They were on different sides of the religious and political and social spectrum. And yet they found a way to come together and collaborate as, as the enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this act of spiritual warfare against our Lord Jesus. They were also politically motivated. The Sadducees were men that had been uh, mainly over the high priest court. They, 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 their um, lineage and their acrastasy was, was a, a sense where they were leading the religious court, the, the, the high uh, priest duties, leading the temple. And it's important to remember that when Jesus cleaned out the temple that day, the day before, remember we talked about how there was such an enterprise going on with the the selling of animals and the, the exchanging of money and the temple tax that had to be paid, that this was such a 
phenomenal experience because of the, the corrupt enterprise that was going on in the midst of God's temple, that these religious leaders were making profit and making money off of God's worship and service? Well, guess, who, guess whose pocketbook got hit the most? The Sadducees. Because they were over this enterprise. Jesus clears the temple, and guess who gets, takes the biggest financial hit? The Sadducees do. Because there they are, sitting in the high priestly court, ruling over the affairs of the temple, including the corruption from within. And so they were enemies of Jesus. They were enemies of Jesus because they were uh, pro-Rome. And they were so afraid that, that because Rome had appointed them to these positions on the high priestly court, they were so afraid that if there was any disruption and there was any revolt by the Jews led by this guy named Jesus, then guess who's going to lose their position of power? The Sadducees. So they were so afraid that Jesus would cause this revolution and they would be dethroned. John chapter 11 gives us an example. It says the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council or the Sanhedrin together and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see their fear? Man, we got we to shut this Jesus guy up because if we don't do something about him, he's going to take away all these, these, this human prestige that we have. And so because they denied the five books of the Old Testament, uh, or they, I'm sorry, only because they held to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and they denied key doctrines like, like eternal life, particularly the resurrection of the body after one dies, then they come to Jesus with this question about the resurrection. And they pose it in a very hypothetical way that they think, okay, we got Jesus on this one. We're going to trap him and confuse him so that he will seem stupid and ignorant in, in before the people. And they pose this question about a woman who is married to a man, this is a hypothetical, although they, this may have been a, a true scenario, we don't know. But the, the question is, if a woman is married to a Jewish man and, and this man dies and they have no children, well then the law of the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy by the way, commanded that that woman be married by the, her ex-husband or her dead, deceased husband's brother. And the reason that, that that was important was because that brother would then take on the responsibilities to help that woman bear a child and in doing so continue the name uh, of their family, the lineage of their family. And in this scenario, the woman has a husband, he dies, they have no children, the brother marries her, he dies, and so on and so forth through seven husbands, all married with no children and then death comes. It's kind of a strange scenario, right? But the Sadducees' thought was, well, 
in this scenario, Jesus, if you believe in this so-called resurrection, then what happens in heaven when this woman gets to heaven and there's seven men going, hey, sweetie, welcome home? Well, I mean, there's going to be great confusion there because by all means, there's not going to be polygamy in heaven. So what are we going to do about this? And I just can imagine, like in the, just the patient wisdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, just covering our Savior and him thinking, you guys are idiots. Really, this is the best that you got? I mean, you, and, and, he, and, he, and he somewhat says that in a very kind and more gracious way than I would ever reply. He answers them by saying this, you are wrong. He probably didn't say it like that. That's the way I envision it. You're wrong. Why? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. See, his answer is pretty simple. The truth about eternity lies in God's word. The truth about eternity is revealed throughout the pages of Scripture. And the reason, Sadducees, you don't understand is because you deny a, a large portion of God's word that has been revealed to you through the prophets. He's laid forth this truth and this doctrine, and yet you deny it. Why? Because you deny the Scriptures. You, divide, you deny the revealed word of God. So the question that I have for you this morning is, where would you go to prove to someone that eternity exists? Where would you go in God's word to show someone that there is eternal life? I know that sounds like a silly question. But oftentimes we get in the spiritual rut of our life and we don't prepare ourselves to answer such a simple question. Well, let me help you. Let me take you to God's word. Because my fear is, is that if we do not center our ministry and our lives around the word of God in its entire, entirety, then we will become just like the Sadducees. Our doctrine will be weak, our understanding of God and his glory will be shallow. And we might fall away. A couple passages that I think are the most important. Psalm 16. If you turn to Psalm 16 verses 9 through 11. You hear pages as wrinkle or ruffle less and less these days with computers, but Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11, the psalmist writes, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
Notice in verse 9, the psalmist writes that his heart is glad, that his whole being rejoices, and that his flesh also dwells secure. That he will not have not only his soul abandoned to Sheol, but that his body will not see corruption. Why? Because the path of life has been set before him. The fullness of joy is found in the presence of the Lord. And at his right hand are pleasures, what? Forevermore. There we have this comforting truth of not only the continuance of our soul as we believe and trust in the Lord, but also a bodily resurrection and eternality as well. Psalm 49, why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit but God Verse 15, will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. There again, the soul being saved for eternity through the Lord. But these aren't the verses that Jesus pointed to. And there are more, by the way. Isaiah 26, verse 15, Ezekiel 37 verse 12. That's just in the Old Testament. But Jesus understood this argument and, and in his wisdom and knowledge, he, he, he realized I need to go back to the Pentateuch to make my case to these men. Maybe not even for their sake because they were lost, but for the sake of those who might have nodded their head with these Sadducees and said, you know, they make a good point. Maybe this whole no resurrection thing really makes a lot of sense. And so Jesus takes them back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 is where God is uh, meeting with Moses. And he is um, on Mount Oreb and, and, and he is revealing his glory through the burning bush. And in that encounter with Moses and Yahweh, he refers to being the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Jesus quotes that. Jesus says, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus adds his commentary. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And Jesus' argument to these Sadducees is it hinges upon the present tense of the statement that God makes to Moses and that he is making today to us as he, as he made it to the Sadducees. 
That he not, he, God is not the God who, who used to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that that present tense statement is about the relationship that God has with his people that continues on after death through faith in his name. That's what we find the comfort in in these passages. He is the God of Abraham because Abraham lives on in eternity after being justified by faith in God. Isaac and Jacob live on in the same way as trusting in the promises of God by faith. And so therefore, church, we find comfort in the truth that exists, that life exists beyond death because the scriptures reveal from Genesis to Revelation that there is an, an eternal state of our lives that will result in either pleasure and joy and comfort in the presence of the Lord Jesus or punishment and damnation because of the wrath against our sin. And there's no denying it. And, as, and just as Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, he is saying, I am the one by which, uh, the, the one who provides such an eternal life for us to be saved. And so I want us to find comfort in those truths this morning to be able to argue and, and, and encourage and point people back to the scriptures to remind them that our God is a God who exists throughout time, beyond time, and he has created us in such a way that we also will exist beyond the time on this earth and that we must be prepared to meet with him. And that there is no self-help book and there is no um, daytime talk show that is going to give you the wisdom and the knowledge and the understanding of true spiritual life for all eternity. There, there's nothing that exists except God's word. It is the source and the fountain of life that points to Jesus Christ. And I couldn't help but be, be challenged and reminded that as a church, that stands opposed to so many things of the world today, that we must be lovers of the entirety of Scripture, otherwise we end up like the Sadducees. But the church of the Lord Jesus is always in danger of falling into the same derailment. As Jesus says, you are wrong to the Sadducees, he is saying, you are led astray. How are you being led astray this week? How is Satan tempting you to disbelieve the promises that God has given you? Promises that he's going to comfort you. Promises that he's going to build up his church. Well, I don't know. I, uh, these, the trials and the temptations and the struggles that I have are so heavy. And let me just say, church, don't believe the lie. 
Don't neglect being lovers of the entirety of God's word because they comfort us, they remind us, they teach us. Let us not devalue one jot or tittle of God's holy word. Whether it's portions or passages that may seem unimportant or too difficult to understand, that we have failed to see the beauty of God's word for our lives. You know, when I was a kid or teenager, I didn't have a whole lot of money. And so I remember as, as a young person, just with a, a very small bank account, I could have pretty much kept everything I owned in my pocket. I don't know why I even had a bank account. And I would go fill up my car, and I remember I always filled it up with just, just enough gas to get me where I needed to go. Like filling up the gas tank was like, oh, that's what rich people do. And it was just enough to get me what I needed to do in that day and in that week and in the events that surrounded my life on a very temporal time. You feel like the church is that way about God's word? You know, I'm just going to get a little bit here and a little bit there just to keep me going, just to get, give me a little bit of an, a biblical spiritual edge today. I'm not really going to bother with all these these big, deep theological things, these weighty truths that spend a lot of my time. Maybe that's how you feel as we study through a book in our men and women, men's and women's Bible studies on how to study the Bible. Maybe that's how you feel, like, man, I have to do all that to study the Bible? Isn't it that important? Church, isn't it so much more important than the, the, the baseball statistics? Isn't it much more important than the social media absorption? That God's word is the spiritual nourishment of our souls? That we would dive deep and swim in the waters of God's word? Because it's sufficient for us. It ministers to our life. Every physical and spiritual fabric of our lives, the Lord Jesus has provided us his word. From Judges to Jude, from the whoredom of Hosea to the laws of Leviticus, from Genesis to Revelation, all of God's word is necessary and should be important to us. It's clear. It's understandable because God has given us his Holy Spirit to illuminate the word of God. That it is active and living in our hearts. It's, as Adam was saying early, it, earlier, it peers into our souls. And it exposes the deep, dark sinfulness that we struggle with day by day. And it's necessary because as it reveals the humanity and the depraved human heart, it doesn't leave us there. It's necessary because the gospel says, I have something for salvation for you. I have this glorious word that will change you. Because it's powerful. As it exposes our sinfulness like a spiritual electrocardiogram, it, it hopes. It, it, it divides the soul, exposes those things, and then it says, and here's Jesus. Look to Jesus. 
Trust in Jesus. He's done all that's necessary to save you. He's doing all, he's done all that's necessary to change you and transform you. And he will complete that work until he returns. And it's a complete word. It's complete because the Lord has finished his revelation to us. There is nothing to be added to it, and thus humanity needs to stop looking for something beyond the word of God to fill our empty souls. He's given it to us. Stop driving by your own house and peering into the windows of your neighbors and going, I wonder what they have that I might enjoy. God has given us all that we have in his word to provide the things, and it's completed for our edification. And the truth for the Sadducees was spiritual life was there. Resurrection was taught, and they didn't see it. And so Jesus tells them in verse 30, or sorry, verse 29, you are wrong, why? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He says it again in verse 31. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Where is he pointing them? He's pointing them to God's word. But they wouldn't listen and they wouldn't see. The second thing he says is not only does the scriptures testify of this resurrection, this eternal life, but God's power testifies of it. The very power that the Sadducees and the Pharisees should have understood from the scriptures, they should have have believed, they missed it. Going back to the five books of the Old Testament for the sake of the Sadducees, how could they miss seeing the great power of God on display? The power of the Trinity at creation. Father, Son, and Spirit creating things out of nothing, forming the universe without a single ounce of material. His power is seen in every drop of water that fell from the sky and rose from the ground as he judged the earth in its sin at the flood. His power is seen in the providential salvation that he brings to pagan people like the Egyptians as he uses Joseph to help them escape a great famine. And his power is seen in the giving of life in the womb, the barren womb of an elderly woman, so that his promises of salvation and redemption and being a a blessing to all nations might be fulfilled through the child with Abraham and Sarah. I mean, is there any reason the the Sadducees had any, uh, should have doubted the power of God and the idea of a life that existed outside of this life? And the answer is no. They had ample evidence, even in those first five books. But they chose to disbelieve that God had the power to raise someone from the dead. 
And one particular topic that kept their belief at bay was how this woman would be married in heaven to seven men. Now, they were thinking fleshly. In other words, how could she intimately be connected to seven men? Because see, in, in, in the understanding of the Jewish mind, marriage served one great purpose. One that we don't oftentimes really promote to our kids, but it was procreation. Right? I mean, that's how God decided to populate the earth. He didn't just create a bunch of people. He created procreation. This was the system of, of bringing forth children up. But why does he have to continually populate the earth? Because death has ravaged the earth. And since death has ravaged the earth, more children must be raised up. More children must be born. And the thinking of the Jews is, well, when this woman, this hypothetical woman gets to heaven... If she's so-called raised to this new life and she has seven husbands, what's the deal? How's that going to work? And what they're failing to understand and give credit to is that God can create heaven and, and, and the new life, the resurrected life, different than he created the earthly life. Because marriage and its purposes on this earth are not needed in heaven. Now, as the, the, the church, we obviously pro promote and teach that marriage is more than procreation, but procreation is not needed in heaven. Why? Because there's no death in heaven. And if there's no death in heaven, there's no children that need to be born. We're born here on this earth. New, a new birth is given to us as people who believe in Christ. And thus we have no reason for procreation in heaven. This is why he, he uh, speaks of the angels. Not that we're equal to angels or that, that, as I used to believe when I watched Looney Tunes years ago, that when I died, I actually got wings and became an angel. Like, that's not what he's promoting. He's saying that in the same way that angels exist as creatures that worship God outside of these relationships of marriage between angel and angel, so human beings will live in heaven, they will serve and worship the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity, and they don't need marriage. That doesn't mean marriage is wrong. That doesn't mean God got it wrong. That means marriage serves a purpose on this earth, right? That if anything, marriage is a taste of the greater fulfillment and the greater joy that we will have in the presence of the Lord Jesus. So on your best days in marriage, remember that you are ref reflecting Christ and his church. Will that be needed in heaven? No, because Christ will be with his church. But on your best days in marriage, as you find the greatest joy and the greatest love and, 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 and the greatest connection and intimacy with your spouse, how much more greater will that be in heaven with the Lord Jesus? Are you guys jiving with me this morning? Man, that gets me excited. That the Lord Jesus will know me more than my wife knows me. Man, what a satisfying and glorious thought. And so these Sadducees couldn't imagine that this woman might rise from the dead and live for all eternity. 
with a different purpose than being married and procreating with these men, these husbands that she lived with on the earth. But the power of God testifies of the beauty of the the resurrection and eternal life. As I read to you earlier in Psalm 16 and other passages, we're encouraged by the truth that although we may die, we will live in Christ Jesus. And that it is a beautiful and necessary doctrine of the church. That without the resurrection, Paul says, we will all live in vain. But even the Corinthian church had trouble understanding this new life, this resurrected life that they would live. And so Paul breaks it down this way. He says, look, there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun, there's a glory of the moon, and of the glory of the stars for different stars from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It's a, what's sown as a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. So what the Sadducees could not see, we can find this great hope and this great comfort in the power of God on display in a resurrected body that we will receive when Christ returns. They couldn't see that in Jesus' teaching. They could not see that in the Old Testament. They could not see that Jesus possessed himself the same power of God because he was God in the flesh. He demonstrates the healing of the sick just as the the resurrected body will be free from sickness. He demonstrated the forgiving of sin just as the resurrected body will live in a sinless state for all eternity. And they ignored the fact that Jesus raised people from the dead. There's no doubt that they knew about Jairus' daughter. There's no doubt that they knew about Lazarus raising from the dead. The news spread throughout the land, and yet they denied that Jesus could do these things, that he accomplished these things, and they put him to death. But let me tell you, church, that Jesus rose from the dead. We sang about it today. And this glorious word that, I, that, that means so much to me is that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. Like, sear that in your brain that he was the first fruits of the resurrection. So if you're a would-be farmer and you're out there planting your, you know, your Home Depot pot of, of, of tomato seed and soil and you see something pop up and you're like, oh my goodness, that's rather like a really you know, colorful insect, or I've actually grown a tomato on this plant. I'm so excited. Adam's our resident farmer here. He'll understand. But the one tomato brings a great excitement, right? A great joy to what? That there's more coming. Man, I got to keep doing what I'm doing. Keep my kids away. Keep the water in the soil. Keep it moist and give it sunlight. Why? Because more's coming. And because of the power of God that displayed in Jesus Christ rising from the dead, more's coming. 
that you and I are raising from the dead because Jesus was our first fruits. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to him. When we buried my mother-in-law, I could not help but be reminded of the great joy of believers that walked down the aisle and shook our hands and told us that they were praying for us. And I just could think to myself, that's the first fruits of the resurrection. People that were full of hope and joy, knowing my mother-in-law loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there were people that just, they were full of despair and brokenness. They had all these questions that were unanswered and they, they could not just contemplate in their mind what to say and how to feel because they had no hope. They have no answers to their questions. They have no understanding of what's to come. They just are afraid and they're confused. Which is why we point them to the scriptures. While we teach him who Christ is. While we teach him what he accomplished on the cross by giving his life as a substitute for sinners. And that he not just died, but he rose victoriously from the grave as the first fruits. And so if you trust in Jesus Christ this morning, then find hope in his resurrection as your bones ache. Find hope in his resurrection as you go through tragedy, as disease invades your body, as your children may walk away from the church and the Lord or maybe not care anything about it, trust in the power of his resurrection. That there is absolutely nothing that cannot be accomplished by the power that God possesses. And we forget that. And we doubt it and we forget it and we have to continually take our mind back to the truths that God's power in his resurrection always restores what is broken. Now he does it according to his plan and he does it according to his will, but we pray fervently for him to change hearts and to heal bodies, but we long to see Jesus Christ for all eternity to worship him and glorify him because that's what we were created to do. So be comforted and long for Christ to return to, to bring to completion his work in this world. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout generations, throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. Know that Christ is working in and through you. And know that you are not going to be raised, but you are also already raised. That because of trusting in Christ and believing in him, if you've turned from your sin, that there is an already and not yet sense of, of, of the truths of scripture which say that you will be raised bodily, but you are already raised spiritually. You have already been transformed. You have already been forgiven. You are already seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. 
And so while you may long for this resurrection, we can still fall into despair because we're like, oh Lord, I just can't, I can't bear it. I can't live any longer. I just want to be in heaven with you. Oh yes, you can bear it longer because you've already been raised. You've already been, you've already seen the power of that transformation in your life today. Let that be your hope. Number two, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus this morning, then consider your eternity. Young people, old people, consider where you will be when this world comes to a close and the new life begins. There's a resurrection to life and there's a resurrection to the dead. That doesn't mean annihilation. That doesn't mean you cease to exist. That means you will dwell eternally under the punishment and wrath of God because you rejected his son or, be, or you will live eternally in his presence because you surrendered to him as Lord. And my prayer this morning is if you don't know him, you don't have entrusted in him, today you would believe in him. Let's pray.